Good evening. Welcome to uh, Big Book Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Set Series. I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Scott. Uh, before we get started, if you all could make sure that any device you have that can make noise is now turned off or is in the mute position or in the airplane mode and slip into meditation. So uh, we'll shut down the lights now. Enjoy your time with God.
the word us. God, let your love shine through us like a fog light. So those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through us. I've asked Paul if you could please read the spiritual awakening for me. I'm a little off kilter right now. A spiritual awakening to me is the heart of AA. It's pretty important that you understand it, and he's going to let us go. Hi, family. I'm Paul. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Spiritual experience. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of a sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a higher power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of a spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer, Alcoholics Anonymous, page 567 and 568. Thank you. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we've discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries for those who suffer from alcoholism. Uh, tonight we have a guest speaker. 
And I have just recently met Tom. I was asking some information about him before he got here, and I learned that Tom was instrumental in putting the posters that are up in the hallways you walk up. He curated all those photos, made sure they're accurate, made sure that the bios and the stories that are attached to those photos are accurate. I'm understanding that that took not just weeks or months, but some years to actually put together. So we can thank Tom for that right now. I'd appreciate it. I tried to find out some more about the speaker. I asked Tom how he wanted to be introduced. He said, I haven't had a drink yet today. So without further ado, please welcome Tom. Thank you for that introduction. Um, I actually, uh, last time I spoke here, it was in a different room, and I, I was not psychologically prepared to speak in this room, so we'll see how this goes. Um, hopefully I can adjust all that change, right? I'm an alcoholic. My name's Tom. Tom. And um, I'm, uh, you all right with me sitting? Yeah. yeah. And it's wonderful to be here tonight. There's probably some other places I could be. Probably some other stuff I could be doing on a Thursday night, but, you know, there's probably no better place I could be and probably nothing better that I could be doing. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. It didn't just save my life. It changed it into one worth living, and uh, I'm truly, truly grateful for that. Uh, the legalese, I'm an alcoholic. My name is Tom Roach. Uh, my sobriety date is June 26th, 2001, and my home group is the Central Fact Group. Um, Two facts after the tremendous fact. Um, and that meets at uh, St. Ambrose Church on Federal Highway in Deerfield Beach on Friday nights at 730. If you're looking for a meeting, we'd love to see you there. Um, I get nervous when I speak. Um, yeah, I got that cane. Um, although last time I was here, last time I spoke here last year, I was wearing a little more hardware. Uh, and my hand all splinted up and... You know, I'm, I, um, I'm in compromised shape, as it were, but I was reminded the other night one of my sponsees was speaking down in Miami, and a few of us went down to support him. And, um, and this guy, young guy comes up to me, says, I don't know if you recognize me, I don't know if you know me, but I'm, uh, I met you when you were doing the steps at the 12-step house. And he, said, and he goes, you look great. And meanwhile, I had just gotten back on a cane, and... Um, and I'm like, I look like hell. And he's like, yeah, when you were at the 12-step house, you had a, like a neck brace and a cast and a thing on your hand and all your hands, your fingers were all wired up and everything else. And um, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I guess I need to be a little more grateful. Uh, I went to an automobile accident three years ago next week, and I went without a car. Yeah, yeah. I'm here to report um, in the automobiles versus pedestrian realm, the automobiles remain totally undefeated. Uh, and I got creamed. Um, ooh, and I woke up in a, in a trauma center. Thank you. I'll be looking for that later. Yeah. So if I go over, what do I have till 930? It, it's because my band broke. I mean, right? <laughs> um, so I woke up in a trauma center, and, and the thing is, when you get a brain injury or something like that, the, the concussion, it backs you up in real time. So I don't remember hearing it, feeling it, seeing it, anything. Um, 
But I got broken from head to toe and um, had no short-term memory early on. I couldn't hold a conversation or anything. And, um, but it reminds me that I shouldn't be walking or talking. They said that they was guy was doing about 50. And, um, you know, I know from just the stats that uh, if you're hit as a pedestrian by a car going about 20 miles an hour, your chances of a fatality are 40%. If the car is going 40 miles an hour, your chances are about 80%. So I'm in the 90 percentile for being dead, and and I'm not paralyzed, and I'm and I'm and I'm walking and talking. So, <laughs> you know, I'm I you know, for for whatever reason, you know, he's doing a work in all of us right here, right now, doing a work, and um, and he's just not done. You know, he's just not done. He could have punched my ticket that day, and nobody would have ever said anything about it. Oh yeah, he got run over. Um, so I am grateful. I am grateful. I get nervous when I speak. It's not like I haven't spoken before, but I get, I get nervous. I thought I was going to outgrow it, and, uh, and I haven't outgrown it. And since the accident, since that trauma, that head trauma, uh, it's worse. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm not going to get over it. But the thing is, years ago, you know, I'd be doing whatever, a big book study at Step series, traditions, history series, whatever it was. And so I developed this thing to get me over my nervousness. And I still do it. I call it the lighter side. So if you've been through steps with me, if you've been to step two, you've already heard this before. But I'm thinking there are a lot of people. I, I live way up north, up in Boca. So I'm thinking a lot of people here might not know me. Or maybe I know some of you from the... Um, I've been involved in the Joe and Charlie in the big book seminar for the last, they brought me in there about a decade ago to uh, help out with that, with the history of AA and, and do some steps there. But anyway, so I figure that um, just in case, what time do I talk till? 8.20? Okay. Um, so just in case I get like carried away and I don't... Um, you know, my goal is to get out of high school and get sober and do all that good stuff. But just in case I don't, I'm going to read you like this is the cliff note version of my story. This is my story. You know, I shared my sobriety date. So, you know, if I don't uh, drink or get run over by a cocaine delivery truck or anything, you know, um, you know, June would be 18 years. But I've been sober for like, you know, 26 of the last 28, most of the 90s. And um, so I've been to treatment and sober for over a year a few times. And um, so I know about, you know, I, I come here contempt prior to investigation. What we just read from Herbert Spencer, that, by the way, you remind me, there's a workshop in my future. It's called Myths and Mis Misquotes. Um, AA History and Big Book Malpractice. Herbert Spencer didn't say that. Um, Bill Wilson got that wrong. He misattributed it, but I know why, and it makes sense why he did it. But um, that's for another workshop, another time. Uh, it was by Will William Paley said that. But um, this is the Cliff Note version of my story. Um, and by the way, I've gone. I'll talk about that when I'm in my story. You know, um, for the skeptic, no explanation is sufficient. Today, for the believer, no explanation is necessary. You know, I've gone 180 degrees, but it took a long time and a few different attempts. Um, but anyways, this is my story. An atheist was walking through the woods. What majestic trees, what powerful rivers, what beautiful animals, he said to himself. As he was walking alongside the river, he heard a rustling in the bushes behind him. He turned to look. 
he saw a seven-foot grizzly bear charging towards him. He ran as fast as he could up the path. He looked over his shoulder and saw that the bear was closing in on him. He looked over his shoulder again, and the bear was even closer. He tripped and fell on the ground. He rolled over to pick himself up, but saw that the bear was right on top of him, reaching for him with his left paw and raising his right paw to strike him. At that instant, the atheist cried out, Oh my God! Time stopped. The bear froze. The forest went silent. As a bright light shone upon the man, a voice came out of the sky. You deny my existence for all these years. Teach others I don't exist. And even credit creation to cosmic accident? Do you expect me to help you out of this predicament? Am I now to count you as a believer? The atheist looked directly into the light and said, It would be hypocritical of me to suddenly ask you to treat me as a Christian now, but perhaps you could make the bear a Christian. Very well, said the voice. The light went out. The sounds of the forest resumed. And the bear dropped his right paw, brought both paws together, bowed his head, and spoke. Lord, bless this food which I am about to receive from my mouth. So I get to be the unbeliever. That's, that's the unbeliever's story. Yeah. So the last time I was here, I actually told my favorite story, which is the AA story the history of AA and how the 12 steps landed on this planet. Um, tonight I'll tell a story that is less my favorite, but um, just, I guess, my story. Um, oh, boy. In, um, in remembrance of me, me, <laughs> that's probably not in the spirit of that. Um, you know, I've called my sponsor many, many times before talking, and he always says, go read page 95. And the reason he says, go read page 95 is in Chapter 7, Working with Others, on page 95, it says, never talk down to an alcoholic from a moral or spiritual hilltop. Simply lay out the kit of spiritual tools for his inspection and show how they worked with you. A couple of paragraphs, a couple of paragraphs later, it tells us why. It says, if he is to find God, the desire must come from within. You know, uh, AA, your sponsor can't impose that on you. That has to come from within. Uh, But the reason he does that is when I get on a little platform like this, it reminds me of being a kid, like what we might call an altar. And um, it, it stops me from doing something like this to you guys. Rarely, I say rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. So I'm going to try not to do that tonight, and I'm trying not to preach from the hilltop and, um, and just share my experience. And then how it works, it tells us how we share our experience um, in a general way. You know, what we used to be like, what I used to be like, what happened, and what I'm like now. And we don't debate philosophy, theology, medicine, or religion. Uh, we talk about what works and what doesn't work. Uh, my life used to not work. I came here and did some work, and now my life works. Uh, you know, that's our stories. Um, so I'll jump in the Wayback Machine for a few minutes here. What I remember most about uh, being a kid was my dad. He was just an overwhelming influence in my life. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, he was really into sports and athletic, and he taught me how to be an athlete. And he was a really smart guy, the smartest man I ever knew. And he taught me how to think. 
And um, I'm really grateful for that. Uh, he was an intellectually curious guy. Um, and he was tall, which meant he could reach the top shelf in the kitchen cabinet, so he was the keeper of the Cheerios. That was good. But the one thing that I didn't like about my father is that my father was an alcoholic. And he was an alcoholic who never found these rooms. He passed away untreated, a lot younger than I am right now. Um, I've never passed that judgment on anyone. As you, you know, 12-step recovery is a self-diagnosed deal. And... Um, he was my dad, and I lived with him every day. And other than myself, it's the only man I've ever, you know, sentenced to alcoholism and um, untreated. And I wanted to be like him in so many ways, but I just didn't want to be that. I didn't want to be an alcoholic. So I started, as I started to get a little older, a lot of my friends are starting to party and whatnot. And I want to do that, and then I want to have the type of relief that they're talking about. But I don't want to be an alcoholic, so I start to cultivate habits other than alcohol. And what I started to do was smoke, smoke marijuana. Now, yeah, I know this is an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. You know, if I had known it was going to be such a damn controversy, I never would have done it, right? <laughs> I didn't know then that I was going to be speaking here tonight, right? Um, and, um, and I remember doing that, and it would just take me to another place. I remember going off to school, and... Um, and it would just take me off to a place, and I'd be just, like, working on stuff. And, um, you know, I remember uh, this one co-ed young woman asked me, she said, you know, something like, uh, you know, I want to share something. You seem like a sensitive guy or whatever. Um, you know, there's something I haven't shared with anybody, but I'd really like to talk about it. And I'd like your opinion. You know, could, is that cool with you? And I'm like, and I'm like yeah, but I'm whacked. And um, so she's explaining all this stuff to me and telling me her little story. And, um, and I'm working on stuff. And I don't mean like my math paper or my English test. I'm like working on global peace and world hunger. <laughs> like I'm solving big problems up here. Like who am I and why am I here and how should I live my life? And then, you know, after a few minutes, she says, well, what do you think? And I'm like, I haven't heard anything. Wah, 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 wah. So I stopped doing it. Not because I had a good idea, because it was a failed experiment. And uh, back then it was a different time zone than now. And... Um, you know, a little more sex, drugs, rock and roll, and, you know, tried everything up, down, electric, whatever, sideways, you could go wherever you want. And, and I leave it all behind, and I stop doing it. Again, not because of a good idea, because it just doesn't work for me. And then, um, and, but alcohol is always there. You know, I did, so I did start to drink, and alcohol always works. Alcohol is just reliable. You get the bottle next to you, you just feel warm and fuzzy all over, you know. I don't ever remember going in, back in the liquor store and saying, yo, you beat me, yo, dog, you know. And, um... <laughs> And uh, so, so alcohol was always there. And at that juncture, it looks like I might lead a drug-free life. And then somebody introduced me to a little white powder. Yeah. And I thought I had found God. <laughs> and if I hadn't found God, I had certainly found a higher powder. And, uh, and it worked. And um, if it still worked, you'd have another speaker. Um, alcoholics shouldn't even do that stuff. We do it alcoholically. And... Um, and I'm not going to say anything more about that. The reason I say it is because that's a big part of my story, and that's my truth. If I was in a discussion meeting talking for a few minutes, I would never do it. But it's part of my story. So just like Bill and Bob, I'm going to play one cut from the album. Um, that being said, I know if we have any big book thumpers in here, baby big book thumpers, um, they get offended because um, 
I waited so long to mention that, and I know Bill and Bob both have done it earlier in their story, so I apologize to the big book numbers for, for waiting so long to mention that. Um, you know, but I have been blessed, and I've, I've got to live in, in AA what I call, what my friend actually, Peter, calls a life of invitation. And um, so, you know, I get to spend a lot of time talking about our history and our traditions. And, uh, you know, without our steps, I'm not here tonight, but without the traditions, there's no meeting. Traditions are the glue that holds 12-step fellowships together. Um, some fellowships early on tried to take the 12 steps without the traditions, and, uh, you know, they didn't make it. Uh, So out of respect, you know, I'm not going to say anything more about that. It's just part of my truth and part of my story. And I know today, you know, I've worked with a legion of guys, you know, sponsored ditch diggers and doctors, laborers and lawyers, and many, many people today have that, have that stuff going on too. Um, so, what, so what happened is I get out of school, and I'm still partying, and I'm doing this stuff. And, um, and I do it, you know, it's funny, when you're at that age – whether you go to school and do it or whether you're going to work or whatnot, around that age, you know, if, you, if you're looking overhead from above and you look at me and my friends, you can't tell the difference really between the hard partiers and the addicts and alcoholics. You know, everybody kind of looks the same. And then we start to peel off. And we start to peel off by, like, they start to say wacky stuff like, oh, my God, it's getting late. <laughs> you know, I got to go home. I told the wife I'd be home. I told the girlfriend I'd be there. I got to go to work tomorrow, whatever that is. And, um, and that's where the real alcoholic peels off, you know. Um, you know, by the time, you know, the, the, the negative consequences of my behavior are coming at me so quickly by the time I get here that I can no longer lower my standards fast enough to be okay. It's not like my friends weren't telling me that my drinking was getting in the way of work. They were right. Work had to go. I am not a guy who, like, stops drinking because of a job. I don't stop drinking because of the marriage. I don't put that stuff on the side. Um, so I just keep going, and eventually, you know, I start to get myself in a little bit of trouble. And, um, you know, it was, it's, I was married, and, um, and I remember, um, you know, the future ex, you know, trying to get me sober in the early 90s. And um, she said, you've got to go to rehab. And I went to, I went to what they call, it's called an IOP. Anybody know what that is? Intensive outpatient? Yeah, it didn't take. It turns out I needed some residential. <laughs> but but um, <clears throat> I remember I get out of it, and I'm not supposed to be drinking anymore. And um, I don't know about My behaviors change when I drink. Does anybody's behaviors change? And she's like, you know, you look like you're drinking again, you know. And I'm like, oh, no, oh, no. And I'm driving her nuts because she thinks I'm drinking, and I'm telling her I'm not. So she, she thinks she's going nuts. She starts seeing a psychiatrist. And... Um, and, and she's like, you know, because in the family illness of alcoholism, the well person tries to help the sick person. And in the family illness of alcoholism, the well person gets sick before the sick person gets well. Most of us didn't get here because we had a good idea. We got here because somebody else had a good idea. Hey, welcome to Paradoxville. You know, you got to die to live. You got to surrender to win. You got to give it away to keep it. One of the other things is most alcoholics will not reach their bottoms until the people that love them and care about them the most reach their bottoms. Right? And stop enabling them to death with the best of intentions. Loving them to death with the best of intentions. Right? So um, she talks to the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist says, well, it sounds like maybe he should come in and see me. You know, if, it's, if you're not crazy, then you think he is. And I go in, and 
spend a couple hours and do all these whatever psychological testing and whatnot, and uh, spend a couple hours talking her, to her about my inner child, and I'm just an alcoholic doing what we do, right? Just telling another lie, another lie, another lie. Alcoholism demands that you live a lie. Active alcoholism demands that. And um, so by the time I, I leave there, I went in there just an alcoholic lying that I haven't relapsed and I'm not drinking. By the time I leave there, I leave there with an inner child, and the first thing I do is take him and go get drunk with him. Right? Maybe corrupting the morals of a minor or whatever. Distribution to a minor. Um, you know, we are our own. Alcoholism is so funny. It's like. It, it starts out being a. It's like a relationship. It starts out a casual relationship, like an acquaintance. Then it's like a friendship. Then it's like um, a, a, a committed friendship where you spend a bunch of time together. Then it becomes a relationship. And then it becomes a commitment where you make a commitment. And finally, alcoholism asks you for an exclusive commitment. And you leave everything else. Alcoholism demands no less than your entire life. And since it demands no less than your life, it will tap all of your resources. It will take all your money and all your time and all your effort and all your emotion, everything that you have. And then, because that's not enough alcoholism will start to tap the resources of the people that you know that are close to you, and you'll start to go take their resources, their money, their time, their peace, their serenity, whatever it is. Um, it's the ultimate betrayal, the thing that worked so well, your best friend, your co-conspirator, your partner, your lover, your everything, the, thing, the one thing that solves every problem in your freaking life, the fear of people and economic insecurity will leave you, get, get drunk enough, that'll leave. Those promises come through with alcohol. You know, what Carl Jung called, you know, alcoholism, a low-level search for God. You know, one way we're lowering our consciousness, the other we're raising our consciousness. And, um, and the thing is, I, you know, how can you be a good partner? How can you be a good family member? How can you be a good husband? How can you be a good employee? How can you be anything when you deal with alcoholism? Alcoholism is the terminator. It just wants me dead. Right. And if it can't get me dead, it wants me drunk, because if it can get me drunk, it can get me dead. And if it can't get me drunk, it wants me restless, irritable and discontent, because if it can get me restless, irritable and discontent, it can get me drunk. And if it can get me drunk, it can get me dead. You know, and, um, you know, I try to get sober a few times. I go to a few different rehabs. I remember they don't I don't think they have them down here. Anybody from up north know what an Oxford house is? They have them up north. They're funny places. The inmates run the asylum. Um, but um but I got sober there. I remember I went um, my first time I got, ever got sober in November '92, and um, this was the next time after the IOP thing. And um, and I go to rehab, and I call her and I say, "I'm getting out of rehab, honey. Would you come and get me?" And she's like, um, "No, you don't live here anymore." And I'm like, "Honey, <laughs> you know you need to come and get me tomorrow. I live there." And I said, "No, you don't live here. The locks have been changed, right?" Uh, well, I need to come and get my car. No, your car's not here. Like, no, my car is in the driveway. I need to come home. She's like, no, that car was in both of our names. And when you're drinking, you can't hold a job and you're going to wreck your credit. And no, I'm not going to have my credit wrecked. That car's been sold. Well, I need to come home and get my stuff. You find a place to live. I'll get your stuff. And I went and lived in this Oxford house. And I did get sober. And I went to meetings, went to meetings every day and didn't drink, didn't drug. And, um, and I got sober for a little more than a year. And then I relapsed. And I didn't tell anybody about it. And I got a good job. And I knew I was going to be tested. So I just stopped everything. And, um, and I did stay sober after that. 
and I stayed sober for a while, and I started to date her again and got back in the house and got a great got my career back up again and whatnot. And um, so I'd been sober about 14 months, then out for a short period of time, and then back. And now I'm back about three years, you know, in the mid-90s. And, um, and I think I've graduated. I just think I'm, like, cured. And um, it took me a couple more years to start the graduation party, but I'll never forget it. I was going through a takeover at work, and it was going to cost me a lot of money, and I knew it was going to cost me a lot of money. I had what I didn't know. I didn't know what it was called then. It's called a resentment. And uh, I was pretty pissed. And um, I had stopped going to meetings, no sponsor, no steps, none of that. And, um, and I would just come home and bitch and moan to the future ex, to, to my wife, about this thing that was going on at work. And selfish, self-centered girl that she was, here I am at five years sober, and she had a heart attack. Well, I'm going through a takeover at work. It seems inconsiderate, right? And I go and visit her in the hospital, and she's going to have heart surgery the next day. She needed me more than she had ever needed me in her entire life. And I'm going through this takeover and this emotional stress, and now she's going to have heart surgery, and I just can't stand it. And as I leave the hospital, I ask myself a question. The question was, would it be okay to go out for just a couple nights? You need a drink. You need, you need some emotional relief. I'll only go out for a couple of nights. She's having heart surgery. Work doesn't expect you. You're not going to meetings or talking to anybody anymore. Who the hell is even going to know? Would it be okay? Now, I live my life forward, but I understand it backward, especially spiritually in the rearview mirror. Today, I know that was the wrong question. The right question would have been, are you willing to lose everyone and everything? I made a decision to go out for two nights. I didn't go out for two nights or two weeks or two months. That relapse started in 99, and it ended with my current sobriety date, June 2001. And, um, and, I'll never, and the bad news was that I did lose everything and everyone. You know, the good news is that, um, that the mystery was solved, that I finally had a good understanding of the first step. You know, and uh, that's a gift, having that mystery solved. I work with lots of guys that don't have that mystery solved. And, um, you know, that first step mystery. And, um, and I remember that, um, you know, what happened is I, uh, she found that I was still drinking. She gets out, she starts to get better, you know, and um, she, she, um, she kicks me out of the house. And um, nobody will take me. Everybody's done with me. But um, my mother, my mother takes me. And, um, you know, we went to, uh, you know, we went to rehab together. And then I started drinking again as soon as we got out, as soon as I got out of rehab. And I just couldn't get sober. She kicks me out. I go live with my mother. And uh, this was in September of um, 99. And... Um, I'm supposed to be going to meetings and getting my, getting my stuff back together so that I can go back into with the wife and get my career back on track and whatnot. And um, instead of doing that, I, um, I go out, I tell my mother I'm going to a meeting, and I go out and drink every night and then come home and drink in the house and whatnot. And on Thanksgiving Day, she says, um, you know, I love you, son, and we're going to have a wonderful Thanksgiving dinner and, uh, you know, turkey and, you know, mashed potatoes and string beans, almondine, like all your favorites and it's going to be just a wonderful dinner, just you and me. And, um, and I just love you so much. And then after dinner, I'm going to ask you to pack your bags and leave because you're killing yourself in my house. And watching you kill yourself in my house is killing me. And I just can't do this. So I love you some, but after dinner, you need to pack and leave. And I did. 
and um, considered and stayed on that jag on that relapse for almost two more years. And I remember I had a couple of fraternity brothers, and um, the deal was that I would go to rehab and uh, this, this last time, and then um, and then come down to one of the local fraction resorts down here up in Boca, halfway. And um, and as I was walking out of rehab, I got my divorce papers. And um, once again, I was so emotionally wrought over it that I just went and started drinking again. And then those guys, um, they tried to do an intervention on me, my couple of fraternity brothers, and they said, uh, you know, come over to our house Sunday morning. We need to talk about what's going to go on with you. And, you know, you need to go down to this place in Florida and whatnot and, um, you know, get your life back together. And they had agreed to give me a bunch of money, $1,400 to drive down to Florida and, um, and pay for my halfway for a little while and get my feet on the ground and get started again. And um, so they say, come, come over on Sunday morning and we're going to talk about it and get your life straightened out. And, um, by the way, note to the Al-Anons in here, when you schedule an intervention at your place with coffee and donuts and tell us to be there, we don't show up. <laughs> you know? And um, a couple hours later, there's, um, you know, I'm just making my daily revolution around the sun, and all of a sudden there's a wobble in the orbit. I'm like, what the hell What the, was that? And that wobble in the orbit was a knock on my crack shack motel door, and it was those two guys. And they showed up, and... Um, and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I need to get together. I know I need to get it together. Just I'm, I'm ready to go like we talked about. I'm going to go to that place down in Florida. You know, just give me, give me the $1,400 that we talked about, and I'll be on my way. I'll be on my way. And they said, yeah, well, after you relapsed walking out of rehab, we called down to that halfway house and talked to them, and they said there's 100 MLK boulevards between Pittsburgh and Fort Lauderdale, and that if we gave you that money that you would never, ever make it here. So you're not getting the $1,400. You know, they say that we're not, oftentimes we hear we're not ready the day before we get here. I wasn't ready five seconds before. You know what I said to them? What about $40? (laughs) And they said, no. And they said, "If if you want our help, we're not leaving. And if you don't want our help right here, right now, we're leaving and we're never coming back. You know, when I said, what about 40? There I am. I was 30 pounds lighter than I am today. And I'm 20 pounds lighter than when I had my accident. I was like, if I turned sideways, I disappeared. And yet there I am, five seconds before I'm ready, contemplating one more attempt to self-medicate with a prescription that has long since passed its expiration date. And I always argued, I'm, you know, thank God for good sponsorship. You know, he stopped me with that. With great ten-step practice about not arguing and resisting and defending a position and living up here in my head, you know, and, that, and that's what I spent a lifetime in a professional career doing, you know, negotiating, winning arguments, right? And, um, and I don't know why I didn't argue with these guys anymore. I just knew that when they said that, that that was the truth. And I got real quiet, you know. You know, we have the language of the heart, but there's a higher language, and it's the language of silence, which is the language of God. You know, after all the chaos and the cataclysm and the thunder and the lightning and the revealing in four and five and the healing in eight and nine, the steps end at 11. The steps end in silence. Silence is the language of God. And I got quiet. And I just knew that I was in no shape to ever get myself to rehab again by myself. And that if I didn't accept their help right there, right then, right now, that I might never see that moment again. And I know that that was God working in my life. And I agreed to go to rehab.
and uh, went back to rehab and then came down to Florida and whatnot. No money. And that was before 9-11. So it's like they, they said to him, you take him to the plane, you walk him onto the plane, you, put, you sit him down in the chair, you know, by the window, make sure he waves, you know, like don't let him go anywhere, right? And at that time, you could, you know, you could walk on the plane and walk through security and everything before the whole 9-11 thing, right? Um, and I came down here and got with this local fraction resort. And um, I'm going to meetings all the time go to lots of meetings, and I remember having what I consider now a spiritual awakening. I didn't at the time, but again, I live, it, live my life forward and understand it backward. Um, and at six months, I remember I'm sitting in my room, and all of a sudden this came on me, and there was another guy very similar to my experience. He had had about nine years and gone back out. And um, so we both were guys that had put, put together a bunch of time and were relapsers. And I said, can I talk to you? He said, yeah. I said, You know, I've put together time before, you know, years, and um, I'm about to do it again. My obsession has lifted, and, um, you know, I'm clean and sober, and um, I'm about to put some time together again. But I'm afraid that if I don't change, whether it's five years again or 15 years, when it hits the fan at one time or another, if I don't change, I'm going to go out again. He's like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I need to find out what's going on. And I had met this guy six months earlier when I first got down here. And he had a peace and a serenity and a calm about him that I had never seen in a man, ever. And, um, and I was the one guy that I was willing to ask to sponsor, but I couldn't find him. And he's raving about, oh, my sponsor is so cool. And we, I had sushi dinner with him this afternoon, you know, and with all these other sponsees, and it was great. And we just keep talking. I'm getting more and more pissed about his great sponsor and me not being able to find this guy. And his great sponsor was that guy, the guy I was looking for, that I had met six months earlier. And as we talked about it, that was revealed, and he hooked me up with him. And um, a couple of days later, on a Sunday morning, I went to a meeting. And after that meeting, right outside in front of it, what I consider holy ground today, I asked that guy to sponsor me. And uh, he said, are you willing to go to any lengths to stay sober? Yeah. Can you follow a few simple directions? Yeah. He said, have you ever tried this before? And I got on my high horse, self-will run riot. And I just said, oh, yeah, sober for years. I've been to hundreds of meetings. I said, actually, the only three things I didn't do were get a sponsor, take the steps, and get this higher power thing. And he just kind of looked at me like that little puppy dog, like Cocker Spaniel, like that. Like, oh, so you were a visitor. That was my first resentment from my new sponsor. And, uh, but he was right. I had been a visitor. I had been a thief in the rooms. And, uh, you know, it's only my opinion, but it's also my experience. Obviously, it's not in the book. But the punishment of the thief, his goods are never safe. The punishment of the liar, he can't believe anyone. The punishment of the adulterer, he can't trust his partner. And the punishment of the selfish and self-centered, he can never fully give nor receive unconditional love. I had been a thief in the rooms. And I said, I'm afraid. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I have a confession. He said, what? He said, I said, I don't believe in God. I've been in a meeting every day for the last six months. And everybody that has this peace and serenity, this joy that, that has what I want, they talk about two things. They talk about a spiritual program and a higher power. And I don't believe in God. And I'm afraid this thing is not available to me. He was, 20, he was about 22 years sober at the time. He was like 40, he's 40 years sober now. And... Um, and thank God, he sponsored a lot of guys, and he knew how to second step somebody. You know, whether it's an elevator version or 22 minutes or 52 minutes, he knew how to second step. And he said, are you willing to believe? And I was so damn desperate at the time, I said, yes. I didn't know he was second stepping me. 
And um, he asked me to do some reading, and we got together and uh, started to do some reading. Turns out, you know, we're told to keep an open mind. I think I got to keep an open mind because I need all this information. The very little information that we need, the only information that we're really missing when we get here is the medical aspect of, of step one, the doctor's opinion, the obsession of the mind and the allergy of the body, the phenomenon of craving, in the doctor's opinion. Other than that, everything else is already inside. Right? So I read that, and we go through the reading, we go through the first step. But I'm a guy who admits he's an alcoholic or an addict, and I go back out. I work with lots of guys who admit that. There's a lot more to the first step than that. I admit I'm an alcoholic and I go back out, right? It's about surrender. The bedrock, he doesn't use that term in the big book, obviously, but by the time he gets to 12 and 12, at 18 years sober versus four years sober, you know, that, um, to accept without reservation that I can never safely drink or drug again. That's the, that's the bedrock. That's the first step, the complete defeat. You know, you were just reading from Spiritual Experience, Appendix, William James. That's where we really get the beginning of the steps. You know, a lot of steps come from the Oxford. We know where the steps came from. People argue about it all the time. Better minds than ours have, have already worked on most of this stuff. Bill wrote an article in 1953, a fragment of AA history, where the 12 steps came from. The author and architect of all three legacies, recovery of the 12 steps, unity of the 12 traditions, and service of the 12 concepts. He told me where he got the steps. I believe him, right? So, anyways... Uh, about half of them come from the Oxford group. And then um, the first three, though, really come from William James. And uh, when, when Ebby brings Bill, that, that varieties of religious experience in the, in the town's hospital, and um, Bill probably focused on Lecture 9, conversions about spiritual experiences, slow or fast, you know, whatever. But they all, there's always three common denominators, that those people always, always experience complete defeat. They admit complete defeat, and they appeal to a higher power. Other than the medical aspect, that's the first three steps, right? Those are by God's grace. I can't impose that on you. You know, I get here in a state of rebellion, resistance, defiance, and denial, and somehow i got to get to a place of surrender, acceptance, belief, and obedience. The first three steps. And I said, like I said, I'm the unbeliever, but this book was written for a guy like me. 164 pages, 11 chapters, and 12 steps. And what does it say? Let go, let God. That seems like a lot of writing for that, right? That's what it says, let go, let God. And then one chapter written to a guy like me, the unbeliever, chapter 4. We agnostics, and what does it say? Get over it. But it doesn't say it like that. It says we won't get over it. It says we needed to ask ourselves but one short question. Do I now believe, or am I even willing to believe, that a power greater than myself and it says, as soon as I can believe in that power, and, or just willing to believe that that can be the cornerstone upon which a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. I love that chapter. That chapter, you know, the big book, I think the big book says, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink. The big book never says, don't drink. It says, find God. But it says, just seek him. And in the seeking, he will be found, right? And be open to that. You know, right in the beginning of that chapter, chapter four, it says, to be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live life on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face. Did you hear that? To be doomed to an alcoholic death or live life on a spiritual basis. Do you know how long it takes a normal person to make that decision? They say, oh, door number two, thanks. Yeah, I'll take the spiritual life. But I'm an alcoholic. I say, well, when you say alcoholic death, like how bad would that be? And, you know, how long would it last? Could I have a couple of drinks on the way? That's, in, that's insane. That's insane. 
And that chapter is written for a guy like me to just be open and willing to seek that. And, what, and there are tons of promises in there. He will not make too hard terms with those who earnestly seek. The consciousness of my belief is sure to come to me, right? Just to, just to get on the path, to be willing to start. And by the time we finish that chapter, you know what it says more than anything else? That what I conclude is that, 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 God does not, that God does not suffer the delusion that he is me, right? He's not saying, I want to be Tom, I want to be the actor, right? And then we get to the third step. And the third step, we, all, we talk about it as a prayer, but it's not the prayer. It's a decision on the preceding page. And it says, hereafter in this problem of life, we had to make God the director, right? We had to quit playing God. And it says... Um, he was, the fa- he was the principal, we were the agent. He was the father, we were the children. Most good ideas are simpler. This concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we passed to freedom. And then right away it says, when we sincerely took such a position, all types of remarkable things happened. That's the beginning of the third step promises on the top of 63. I need to know what that position is. That's obedience. The position of the actor to the director, the agent to the principal, the child to the father. Right? I get here in a state of rebellion, resistance, defiance, and denial. First three steps, surrender, acceptance, belief, and now obedience to turn my will and my life over. Which more than anything else at that juncture means to just keep going. And I remember, I get down on my knees with my sponsor, and he holds my hand, and we say a third step prayer. And I get up, and he gives me a hug, and I feel different. I feel different. And I don't know what the hell force or power is going to run my life, but I feel that whatever power is going to direct it is going to do a better job than I've done up till then. And probably my strong belief in my sponsor at that juncture is serving me better than my weak belief in my higher power. But that will come because he's going to continue to hold my hand through the rest of the steps. I feel like relaxing. I mean, I felt good after that third step. Like, but there's a tremendous transition right there. And what it says is, although this decision was a vital and crucial step, it would have little permanent effect, meaning those promises that you just read, third step promises, glimpses of promises unsustainable without additional work. It would have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which were blocking us. And we know Bill means from God. It says the liquor was but a symptom. We had to get down to causes and conditions. The way my sponsor said that to me, and I didn't know the book at the time. I mean, I'm going through the book for the first time with him. You know, that was a while ago. What he said is, I want you to make a commitment to me. And the commitment that I want you to make is that you take the rest of these 12 steps to a spiritual awakening. He said, and the reason that it's so important that you make and and complete that commitment is that if you don't, you'll probably drink. And if you drink, instead of carrying the message, you'll spread the disease. And the disease that you'll spread is that you tried AA and that AA doesn't work. And the truth will be you never did the work. So I made that commitment, and I did get busy. And he asked me to go do some writing on a four-step. And um, I remember I called him up a couple weeks later, and I was complaining about um, this pay cut at work. And um, and I go through the whole thing, and then he goes, gets quiet for a second, you know, the, the sponsorship pregnant pause, right? And then he goes, wow, I can't believe how much that four-step is going to help you. Now, when he would say stuff like that, I would just say what I had just said louder and slower, like he didn't hear me, right? And I start re-explaining my problem at work. He goes, yeah, I can't believe how much that four-step is going to help you. A couple weeks later, I have a little problem at the halfway house with my rent because of the pay change. Call him up, start complaining about that, and he goes, I can't believe how much that four-step is going to help you. 
a couple weeks later, I call him up, and I'm like, and I'm complaining about something about the divorce, and he's like, and he's like, yeah, I can't believe how much that four step is going to help you. He was not confused about his job. He's not a relationship counselor, or a financial counselor, or a medical counselor, or a legal pro- none of that stuff. His job was to get me through the steps. And if he had played junior therapist and relieved my pain, there would be no reason for me to keep moving through the steps. Right. So finally, that last time, he just says, what the hell are you doing? Are you supposed to be writing? And I'm like, yeah, I'm thinking about it. And he goes, yeah, it's not a thinking step, Tom. It's a writing step. Right. And, um, and I go, yeah, but he go, I'm trying to organize it in my head and get an outline and it all worked out. But there's no Pulitzer Prize for this, Tom. Just, you just need to write it. And we talked for a half hour and he goes, all right, we're going to get off the phone right now. What are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. You've given me a lot to think about, Charlie. And, uh, I was a head guy, and he knew he had to keep me out of my head and keep me busy. And, um, and then I went, I did it, and I did it, and I did a fist up. And, um, and what I remember about that fist up was that, um, you know, he said, um, you know, you think there's something about you that you're going to take to the grave, and if you do, you're, you're probably going to drink over it. And, um, and I told him something that had never seen the light of the day. And it was the first time that I had ever revealed that, but felt like... I could reveal it to this person and that he would have that information and not use it to hurt me. That's why I had never seen the light of day, because somehow that was going to hurt me if that information was out there. And I had gotten it out. And it's like, it's like MLK said, you know, hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. And darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. And that stuff needs to see the light. And I got to see the light, but yet know that it was in the vault. And at the end of the night, at the end of that fist step, he said, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm like, I did what I usually do. I'm like, I'm in AA. I've been going to AA. I'm doing all this. He's like, welcome to AA. And a few days later, I knew. I felt like maybe these things in me, because the steps move very quickly after five. You're through six and seven. You're making a list and you're making amends right away, right? And, um, and I felt like it was possible that, that change was going to be possible in my life. And I felt that forgiveness could be possible. You know, therapy is about explanation, but spirituality is about healing. Uh, and healing is always about forgiveness, about forgiving and being forgiven. And, um, and I felt that that was possible. And I felt like I belonged. Like he said, welcome to AA. All of a sudden, I'm in meetings, and people are talking about doing a four-step or a fifth-step or making amends. And for the first time, I know what people are talking about in the rooms. For the very first time, out of all those years sobered, I have no idea what's going on because I'm not doing the deal. And for the first time, I did feel like I belonged. And, um, and I went through the rest of those steps, and I did have a spiritual awakening. Um, those guys, you know, I wouldn't do... I made most of my amends, and the amends was, is a freedom step, you know, to get out of jail, you know, get out of jail free card. And um, I, I wouldn't make the amends to my, the guys that did the intervention on me, my fraternity brothers. I was just bitter about it. They took my car to pay for the additional rehab and my flight down and everything else instead of giving me the money. And now I didn't have a car. And I, 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 thought, I said, I'll make it at one year, and I couldn't make it. I said, I'll make them at 18 months. I couldn't make them. And then... At two years, I couldn't even pick up my medallion because I was sick over it. And, um, and I just didn't think that they had helped me in the right way, like the way I wanted and whatnot. And then that, that summer, a couple guys came into my life, and I wound up doing a lot of 12-step work with them. And, um, and they couldn't stay sober, but I got them to detox and rehab and stuff and did all this work with them, and they were just impossible to work with. And during, and during that process, I realized what those guys had gone through. And one of the guys, his mother called me every night for a week 
while he was in detox. And I, got, and I talked to her every night for like a half hour to an hour. And for the very first time, I realized what I had put my mother through. You know, I think because I have three sisters and a brother and they're all doing the right thing, that mom is fine. You know, I live my life forward. I understand it backwards, especially spiritually. And today I know that a mother is only as happy as her saddest child. And I got to know what I had put her through from that work. And I got to know what I had put my fraternity brothers through. And after doing that, I was able to make those amends. And I was about you know, a little over two years sober. And my, my sobriety exploded. I was just free, finally. And um, after that, my just everything just took off. All kinds of service and talking, just everything, sponsoring guys. And... Um, and we never know, you know. It's, it, 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 I love in the in the in the book in, in nine, in the big book, and it talks about at the moment we're trying to put our lives in order, but this is not an end in itself. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum use to God and the people about us. I thought that I was working with those drunks and crackheads because they needed their lives changed. No, God needed to take someone who was so broken with a resentment that he was still harboring that at two years he couldn't even pick up a medallion. And he puts a couple guys that can't even stay sober in my life to fix me, to fix me. And I came out on the other side, a new man, you know, and it's like, it's so unbelievable. There was a ripple in the matrix, you know, and a crack in the time-space continuum, you know, and, you know, meeting by meeting, page by page. Prayer by prayer, step by step, action by action, the God who pursues those who originally denied him interrupts my mediocre sobriety and reveals a new freedom, the likes of which I never had imagined. Both those guys, those fraternity brothers, have since, because of that positioning with those amends, have since asked me for help with people that they love and care about, family and friends that have substance abuse or, or alcohol problems, and they've come to me for help. And because of that healing, I've been able to do that. I was speaking at a conference in Tampa a few weeks ago. And after I finished my commitment, I, um, one of them was over in St. Pete. And I got to see him. I hadn't seen him in a while. And I didn't know the other one was going to be there too. And, um, and I got to spend some time with the guys that 18 years ago saved my freaking life by knocking on a crack shack motel. And not giving up on me when I had already given up on myself, you know. And... Um, and now I've positioned myself to be available to them, to help them. We have no idea, when we're given this opportunity, we have no idea the price that will have to be paid. And I think that that's a good thing. And certainly Bill Wilson had no idea the price that he would have to pay. You know, the giving up of his life, the going homeless and getting kicked out. And the, the, I don't have time to talk about the writing of the book. That's a whole other talk. But um, just what he went through to... to Create AA. And, um, you know, without the book, we're not here either. Um, but that low-level search, that low-level seeking, you know, and the language of God, that's a funny deal. You know, alcoholics are seekers. There's a, there was a poem by T.S. Eliot, a group of poems called The Four Quartets, but in one on the last getting it says, We will not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started, and know the place for the first time. It's like going back to the innocence of a child, the language of silence. Before we drag alcoholism, the magnet of alcoholism, to the scrapyard of life and pick up all the crap that blocks us off from this untapped, unsuspected inner resource. I've always been a seeker, seeking in a bottle or a bag, whatever it is. You know, we're so blessed. Back, you know, 100 years ago, they had the alcoholic dilemma, right? A bottle or a bullet. We have the alcoholic trilemma. 
a bullet, a bottle, a bullet, or a big book. We are so blessed. You know, I talked about going off on those quests while I would get, you know, drunk or high. You know, and, uh, you know, who am I? Why am I here? How should I live my life? Those are the karmic, cosmic, universal questions of all mankind for all time. And they are answered in the 12 steps in general. But they're answered in the 12 step in particular. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Who am I? I'm a spiritually woke alcoholic. Why am I here? To carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. How should I live my life? I should practice these principles in all my affairs. We're seekers. We, have been, we seek and we have also been sought. Great stories are about love and great stories are about redemption. The greatest stories of all are about love and redemption, about being lost and found. Right now, if you have a seat in Alcoholics Anonymous, you're sitting in the largest lost and found on the planet. We are so blessed. And not with just with sobriety, but with that other gift, the gift that I denied the gift that I had contempt prior to investigation, the gift that I looked at with a clenched fist, not open to receive. In 1961, in April of 1961, Bill wrote an article called God as We Understand Him, The Dilemma of No Faith. And it's actually a fist up about how he's trying to shove God down people's throats in the beginning. But I love where he ends it. And where he ends it, he says, faith is more than our greatest gift. It's sharing with others is our greatest responsibility. May we of AA continually seek the wisdom and the willingness by which we may well fulfill that immense trust which the giver of all perfect gifts has placed in our hands. I just need to remain a good steward of the trust. God bless you. I'm going to be really selfish right now and say thank God he did not take you when he could have. That was incredibly honest. Uh, we're very blessed to have you. Please thank Tom one more time for sharing with us. This time I'm going to have my treasurer, our secretary, come up and uh, save me from myself. My name is Mark. I am your recovered alcoholic secretary for the night. Um, I don't need this. Keeping with our seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. The baskets are now going to go around. As the baskets are going around, uh, we need one of the guy passing the baskets. I've asked to read the recovered statement. Vinny? Oh. Um, we read this notice... To explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering and exactly what it means to be a recovered alcoholic. So here's Vinny. Thank you. Hi everyone, I'm Vinny. I'm an alcoholic. Recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered but not cured? That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. 
age 23. We are now saying where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Cool. Thank you, Vinny. So 1940-style big book sponsorship from the forward to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to A and really tried, 50% of them got sober at once and remained that way. 25% of them sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time. And neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. Can I please see a show of hands of recovered alcoholics? It's like three-quarters of the room. Is there anyone in the room that needs a sponsor, a big book sponsor? If, uh, if you are, there's plenty of people with their hands raised. A couple quick announcements. We don't, we're not in our normal room where we have the projector running, but I'm just going to do a couple. Um, Fellowship of the Spirit is the weekend of June 9th. We're going to be flying Mickey and Marie in from Colorado. It's a dual uh, AA Al-Anon session. Um, we did it here last year, and it's a real great time. We hope you all come out for that. Other than that, we meet here every Monday at 6.30 for Fellowship. Um, we have a big book study where the big book comes alive. We go through all 164 pages. Uh, the meeting starts at 7.15. Um, we have CDs, mugs, large print, big books, little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale. Besides that, next Thursday we're going to be back here. Marion's going to be speaking for us again, and she's going to be continuing. Uh, starting promptly at 7.15, we ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. Um, real quick. There's a lot of stuff going on at the church tonight. There's a play going on downstairs. There's a lot of people here, more than usual. If anyone's smoking and vaping, can you please go on the side of the building where all the cans are? We'd really appreciate that. We want to stay out of the view of the play. So um, we'll see you all next week. Thank you.
possessions that I have amount to nothing at all. Shining through 
crying Bring on the rain So stop your sighing, baby And be happy again Yes, and keep on smiling Keep on smiling, baby And I hope
Michael Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Come on. The fog is 
lifted See the light Count my blessings when I go to sleep at night And I dream now Yeah, I dream now And everything's alright <laughs> Oh, man Going on 10 years old, that song is God bless I love you, Mike Chase Bye.